Okay. Good morning, everyone. If you haven't got your drinks, get your drinks. Find your seats. Looking forward to speaking to you today. I've uh, had a really good weekend. Mostly yesterday, walking with a bunch of the guys uh, in some beautiful, beautiful countryside around Matlock, which, if you're not familiar, familiar is in, in the Derbyshire Dales. Um, perfect weather, great company, um, a fairly steep climb at the beginning, which made some of our thighs burn a little bit more than our faces from the sun. But some good views. We spotted a castle. It had a folly. And um, we had an amazing lunch. Um, when, they, when they served me my gyros, the plate was possibly that big. Maybe I'm going to do a fisherman's story. Maybe it was that big. Um, seriously, this is not a serving for one person. But I, um, I managed to conquer the hill, and I conquered the plate partially. There was a little bit of carbs left for Joel to, to eat. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders here at Real Life Church. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you a little bit about, about some characters that we, we find in Mark in, in our series that's titled All About Jesus. And I just want to make sure that even though we're talking about a scribe and a widow, that actually you know that while we're talking about them, we are talking about Jesus. And we're talking about ourselves, and we're talking about our relationship with Him. And as a way of leading into that, I just, um, I remember when, when I became a Christian, I, I walked into a church that was good. It was good in, in so many ways, um, but like all churches, it had its failings. And I remember that one of the things that this church did really well was encourage uh, a lot. I'm, I'm talking about 20 or 30 young lads that had basically come off the beach out of a lifestyle of drugs and drink and girls and partying and surfing and bring them to Jesus and say to them, not only do you come to faith in Jesus, but your life changes and you start living a life of personal holiness because of Jesus. So they did a good job of that, and they, but there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pressure on us to be holy. So it came from a good place, and it, it brought about a lot of change in external behavior, and it brought a lot, a lot of change in heart attitude towards Jesus and acknowledging Him not just as our Savior, but as our Lord, the one that, the one that not only gives us access to the Father, but also empowers us to change our behavior here on earth. But when we got it wrong, it was a bit tough. So a lot of us hid what we did wrong, or when we got something wrong, because we were afraid. We were afraid of our peers, we were afraid of our pastors, and we were afraid of God. So there was this really good part of my upbringing in the Christian faith, but it had a negative consequence in that we became distant. We guarded ourselves. We tr tried to hide. We weren't real with each other. And the Word says that we need to be real. We need to be open. We need to be honest and vulnerable. And then, and then for some of us, there's, there was this tendency, isn't there? So there's this, 
this emphasis on personal holiness, and then there's the swing to the, the opposite extreme where, where we, we stand up and we say, Christ has set me free, and it's for freedom that he has set me free. So I am going to do pretty much whatever comes naturally, and I'm not going to feel bad about it at all because he went to the cross and he died for my sins, and so I am forgiven regardless. So I can do whatever I want, and God will forgive me for it. I didn't go that way. I was too good. I just sat sitting with the guilt of legalism and, and feeling like I couldn't talk about my sin. But I did watch a lot of my friends who did. And what I noticed is that for a little while, they seemed to embrace it. I was freaking out because it looked like, oh, this isn't quite what I read in the Bible. But they, they embraced it. But after a while, they ended up feeling bad as well. And they were being no more honest with anyone because they were trying to prove how free they were. So if you're trying to prove you're perfect or you're trying to prove you're free, you end up in a place where you're remarkably removed. You, you become distant. You become isolated. You become a person within yourself because you're trying to prove something to the people around you. You can't be honest and open with them. And you can't be open and honest with God. You become scared of Him. And that's, that's a little bit of, of what I've seen. And, and today we have the opportunity to look at two characters and their relationship to God. And, and in a way, um, we can look at ourselves when we see these guys. So first of all, we're going to have a look at the scribes. Now remember, we've come out of a, a section where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes have just asked Jesus three loaded questions and Jesus answered them so well that the scriptures say that no one dared ask him a question thereafter, but now he asks the questions. So that's what we're going to look at now, Jesus asking the question. But first of all, we look at the scribes. He talks about the scribes. And let's be honest, they were, they were genuinely proud. They were genuinely proud of their, their holiness, their behavior, their status in society, they were completely convinced that their outward observance and their elevated status in Jewish society put them closer to God than others in that society. And unlike me, they didn't feel guilty. When they went to bed at night, they slept peacefully. They were absolutely happy. They were thoroughly convinced. And that's why, that's why their encounters with Jesus made them so uncomfortable and so offended that they were willing to consider murdering him. They had convinced themselves that murdering him wouldn't be a sin, it would be fulfilling God's will because they couldn't line up what Jesus was doing with the way that they saw their relationship with God. And then... <clears throat> And then we meet the widow, who was completely open and completely honest about her dire need. Her dire need, her inadequacy, her lack of stature in society, and yet she gives everything, absolutely everything that she had to worship God. A sincere and a, a humble heart who, who trusted God to save her. Trusted God completely to save her in a, a physical, real way, not just some kind of abstract, spiritual way. 
It wasn't an arrogant reaction to self-righteousness like some of my friends. It wasn't a, a radical swing like we see in some people to the sort of rebellious freedom. But vulnerable honesty and trust with the people around her, being completely honest with them about her status, making her offering in a very crowded place with everyone watching, honest with God, and Jesus absolutely loved her for it. So first, as I say, we have a, a lot to learn about ourselves from these two characters. So as we, as we look at this text, it's easy to, to kind of vilify the scribes and put them over there, the bad scribes, terrible people that we shouldn't have anything to do with, and take pity or perhaps even admire the, the widow. But what is harder and what is more important for us to do is to see ourselves reflected in both of those characters and to take on the challenge of considering, considering for a moment our own hearts and letting Christ teach us the lessons that he has to teach us in these words. And then secondly, I want you to hold this in your mind as we're looking at it, we must not miss that this comparison of the scribes and the widows takes place in the context of a curious question that Jesus asks about the scribes' understanding of the identity of the Messiah. It's not there as a coincidence. It's not that when Stuart was deciding how we're going to preach through Mark, he just arbitrarily decided that this is the, the bit of text that Jeremy's going to preach about. It makes sense. It's part of the context for the comparison of the widows and the scribes. The widow and the scribes. The question that he asks them is in a way, as I said, the final word after those religious leaders' questions. They've asked him three. He asks another. Why does he ask another? Because what they asked wasn't enough to answer the question of his mission. And at the end of the day, he is the one in authority. He was not on trial. He was putting them on trial. So we're going to look at that. And then finally, I want you to see that this is a foreshadowing of the selfless offering that Christ will make for his people when he gives himself over to be crucified. So the big idea that we're going to look at as we read the text is, do we grasp the true magnitude of who Christ is and what he did for us? And does that take us to a place where we are willing to give everything we have in worship of him? So we're going to read, but before we do, can we pray? Can we pray that God's word has the authority over our lives and that God's word speaks into our hearts and changes our thoughts, our actions, our words, and our deeds? Lord, I just want to thank you that that you gave us your scriptures, not just as a book for us to refer to, to remind us of a tradition that we hold to, but as the declaration of your will for us. Lord, we have your scriptures as the final prophetic declaration of how God works with his people, as the final authority of, on all things regarding life 
and worship. And Lord, as we read your word, we pray that you will bring it to life, Holy Spirit, that you will make it speak to each and every one of our hearts. And Lord, that it would bring us to a place where we are willing to submit and give everything we have over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. I believe Stuart is the man with the mic. He will be running around the audience and um, finding three willing participants to read our text to us. We're looking at Mark chapter 12 and verse, starting at verse 35 through to 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around the long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many people put in, sorry, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has given everything she had. I can't read the last line, Jez, you're in the way. <laughs> all, all she, she had to, had live, to on. live on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you so much, Phil. Thanks, James. Thank you. Right. Okay. Let's have a look at this. Let's just pause. Let's let this wash over us. Let's think about it a little bit more carefully than we may do in a casual reading. After all, that's the way we should be treating the Word of God. That's a lot of the reason why we preach on a Sunday, is not to give it a casual glimpse or to justify some points that we think are right, but for us to really grab hold of what God is speaking to us in this text. So in verse 35 then, Jesus asks this question obliquely. He doesn't ask it directly to the scribes. He asks the crowd about the scribes' understanding of the identity of Messiah. And their understanding of the identity of Messiah is expressly that Messiah is a descendant of David. And you're probably thinking, yeah. So what's the problem with that? That's is the identity of the Messiah, and you're right, but it's not completely the identity of the Messiah, and it doesn't completely um, capture the essence of what Messiah came to do, and it doesn't, this is very important, completely capture the reason Jesus came in the way that he did, and the way that he taught, and the way that he showed up as king 
in his life. A lot of people look at Jesus and they think, yeah, man, he was like this cool, revolutionary, hippie guy that, that kind of pushed up against authority, but he was gentle and he was meek and he came to heal people and love them and care for them. Jesus was strong. Yes, we see him at Christmas as born in a manger, humble as a child, vulnerable and weak. And we see at, near his, at his end, he dies on a cross in the cruelest of ways, submitting himself in a sense to, to the brutality of the authority of the world. But he's going to rise again and he's going to be... be um, Sorry, he's going to then ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father. And right now, he is not a humble, gentle lamb. He is a wild, strong, powerful, roaring lion, seated in authority with his enemies as his footstool. And he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's really important that Jesus makes sure that the people in Jerusalem grasp that and that he does make sure that they understand that the, the, the temple system, the religious system, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the, the Sadducees, that whole system is coming to an end. He judges them. So he's, asked, he's been asked these questions and he's trapped them He's caught them in their own cunning trap-like questions, and he's told them that no one, and, and sorry, no one dares ask him any more questions, but he asks this one of them. And the truth is, he's, he's referencing Psalm 100. So here's the context for you. Psalm 100, which was written by David. And it was used as a coronation song. So we've just had a king who was coronated. Imagine one of those hymns being Psalm 100. And the song was sung out as the king was being crowned, and it would be sort of a, a kind of a, a way of indicating how that king is aligned to God, and he's seated at his right hand, and he is counseled by God, but he's also given authority to rule on God's behalf on earth. And then the, the rule of the kings came to an end in 586 BC, and the religious authorities then used the, the psalm more commonly to refer to Messiah. And you might think, oh, well, you can't just change the meaning of the psalm. But actually, the truth is, it applied to both originally anyway. Messiah is king. He is the anticipated returning king of Israel who will deliver them from their enemies. He is the promised descendant of David in the line of the kings. And in the minds of the religious authority, this is where the snag is. In the minds of the religious authority, he is an earthly king. He is a man. He is born of a man. And he is descended from David. He is from God, but he is not God himself. He is a king that will deliver them from their earthly enemies. And like all earthly kingdoms, they were thinking primarily about their current enemy, so the Romans at this time. And Jesus, with his question, turns that on its head by pulling on the first line of the psalm, this somewhat confusing line, the Lord said to my Lord. In other words, using 
in English, the same word, but referring to two different people. And, and in the original, it is actually Yahweh, the Lord, said to Adonai, my Lord. Two different people, God, Yahweh, speaking to Lord, King, or Messiah, the second person. Now, Jesus simply asked them to explain the logic. David wrote the psalm. And if Messiah was merely the earthly descendant of David, how come David refers to him as Lord in the psalm? Simple logic question. I mean, if the scribes are right, then Messiah doesn't exist yet. When David wrote the psalm, the Messiah is still a seed, still waiting to exist. But he refers to him as Lord. David refers to him as Lord in the psalm. And the great throng, 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 that's terrible, the great throng heard him gladly. Now, I kind of think that in a way, the great throng were delighted that he publicly humiliated the scribes. But that's actually not Jesus's main thrust here. I think, I think this phrase actually alludes to the sense of awe that that crowd felt as they realized this amazing truth that had been staring them in the face this whole time And yet even those that were most respected in their society, most learned and educated in the scriptures, completely missed it. In other words, I think it refers to the penny dropping. And they're like, ah, wow. That is really interesting. So yes, yes, he is challenging their authority. He's challenging the authority of the scribes. And And in a very real sense, he is pronouncing judgment on the entire temple system. We've seen it throughout Mark, and we're going to see it pronounced very, very explicitly in the next section, second sec, next few sections. We're going to to see him pronounce judgment on the entire temple system. But the truth that he is revealing with this teaching is that Messiah is not merely a human king sent by God, but... He is pre-existent. He is divine. He is God. That Messiah will be the actual rightful king of Israel, the one that was always meant to be king. If you go back into the Old Testament and you see the conversation between the people of Israel and um, the prophet saying, we want a king, we want to be like other people, and then God saying, you'll have no other king but me, and them insisting on having a king, and eventually a king is given. At the end of the day, the original intent for God's people was that they would have one king and one king only, God himself. And so Jesus is re-declaring that. He is saying, Messiah is God himself. And he is on a mission to deliver his people from their actual enemy. Not the Romans, but sin and death. He is on a mission to bring his people to himself so that they can be in communion with with him for eternity because they are free, rid of the effects of sin and death forever. And that is huge. That is massive. 
That is such a huge change in paradigm, way of thinking for the religious people of the time. And it's in that context, it's, it's in the wake of that pro- proclamation that Jesus chooses to use the scribe and the widow to teach his disciples about the true nature, nature of worship when you're worshiping the true king. So, first he warns them to beware, beware of the scribes. In short, he says, they commanded respect externally, and they, were, they had seeming wisdom. They postured their, their holiness, but actually, deep down inside, they were power-hungry, and they would do anything to keep hold of their power, including oppressing those who were most in need and even killing someone who is a real threat to their power. So let me just say something about their power and their wealth, the wealth that they had control over. Um, Jesus refers to a couple of things here. He refers to their robes. Those robes were significant. They were expensive. uh, And most importantly, they stood out. They were full-length prayer shawls, covered them from top to bottom, all the way to the ground. And they were a light linen color, and they had these tassels on the bottom, on the four corners. And when they walked through the marketplace, they stood out in a crowd where everyone else had brown tunics or or brightly colored garments. And everyone would notice them. They loved to be out and about. They spent most of their time walking around and being greeted. What that meant was everybody except laborers were expected to stand up and honor them as they walked past. I don't think teachers even get stood up for when they walk into a classroom anymore. But they would walk into the marketplace and everyone would rise and greet them. They would honor them. They, they, were, they were given the best seats for them. The synagogue, they were seated, these benches, right up at the front, near the, near the, the dais, and they were facing the crowd, and they were the best seats to be seen and to be heard. So those that got opportunity to speak, those that had authority in the, the community, um, were seated at the front. They were always there, like these seats, perhaps, which aren't aren't reserved for anyone in particular, but I notice are quite empty um, unless certain people take them. Uh, so there were seats re- reserved for them. They, they, um, they were given the places of honor at civic celebrations. They, they, um, they, they, had, they had huge, huge social power. And not only that, it didn't end there. The, the access they had to, to wealth was astounding. The reserves held by the temple would absolutely make our eyes water. I think if we did a conversion into today's numbers, it would, it would be, it would be mind-boggling. And not, I mean, not only was there the furniture that was required for worship, which was made out of gold or silver, the other precious metals and and valuable materials, but the actual treasury was massive. You see, they didn't just. They didn't just take a collections or offerings. They also acted like a bank for wealthy people, wealthy families that, who, felt like, who felt like putting their, their vast wealth into a sacred place was the safest place of all. 
So the, the, the treasury was, was immense. So these guys were powerful, super, super powerful. Nothing like today's clergy. Yet Jesus says of them that they are pretentious, that their long public prayers are for show, to draw attention and admiration on themselves rather than to worship God, and that their actions have the effect of exploiting the poor and downtrodden. And he pronounces judgment on them. He goes into, um, Matthew goes into far more detail about these judgments. But in Mark, we simply hear that he says that they will receive the greater condemnation. When I put my notes into Word, it recommended to me that I remove greater because there is no order of magnitude to condemnation. Condemnation's condemnation. I was like, well, Jesus says the greater condemnation, so this, this is really bad. This is greater than our English rules of grammar will allow. But he pronounces that on them. And, and in the original, it is that serious. And then there's the scene change. He steps away. He's no longer teaching. Jesus and his disciples are now sitting in the temple. They're probably sitting on the ground. And they are opposite the treasury, which is in the court of the woman. So this is the first enclosure in the sanctuary where everyone is allowed to worship. The Jewish woman and, ch- and children are allowed to worship and everyone else is allowed in that space as they make their way through to, to their places. And, and Mark says that Jesus was watching, watching people putting money into the offering box. It's almost like, you know, he placed himself there to watch this, waiting for his teaching moment. And I just wanted to say... It, it says offering box. This was not just a little post box like we have where you, you pop your slip. This was, um, <clears throat> it was a very large repository. It was called a shofar chest. And the missioner says that there were 13 of them in the temple. Which, and they had funnels on top of them which looked like shofars, which were trumpets made out of horns. So the idea was that you had this, this funnel on top of this big box where you could put your offering. You'd put your hand in with your offering and drop it in. And the point was you could get your hand in far enough so that your offering wouldn't be spilled out, wasted, dropped on the ground, whatever. But you wouldn't be able to go far enough in to nick something. You wouldn't be able to steal anything. So it was like first century security right there. That was G4S for them. Um, so that was... That was the offering box that they were looking at. Big, imposing, and um, right in front of the treasury. And um, he's sitting there watching, and the word tells us that many rich people made very large offerings. But then in contrast, there arrived this poor widow. And it's, it's funny because he just referred to a widow when he was judging the scribes. And this widow puts in two copper coins. Now, I don't know how to describe this to you, but it's, it's not... But two copper coins refers to a... It's, it's not even a day's wages. It's nothing. And Jesus discerns that this nothing that she puts in is all that she had to her name. That's everything that she had. And she comes in with her everything, 
knowing her lowly status in front of everyone and puts it into the shofar chest. Now, to, to put it in context, I mean, Jesus is looking that and he's saying that these two copper coins are, are worth more than the entire wealth of the whole treasury of the temple. These two coins that, that wouldn't make a thousandth of a, a percentage difference to the treasury ledger was worth more than the whole inventory to God. And we have to ask ourselves why. And Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us why. He says that everyone else had given what was convenient. They'd given what they could afford. They'd given out of their abundance, whereas she had given everything. She had out of her poverty. To the point where she was at God's mercy for her survival. She had nothing left to her name. She had literally given her life in worship to God. And you know this, but she couldn't then go and um, get herself signed up for social welfare. Everything for her was everything. There was no fallback plan. Her offering revealed that God was her everything and that she trusted Him completely. And Jesus says that that is true worship. Not singing a few songs, if they're your thing. Not giving a tenner at the end of the month, if you have a bit of spare cash left after everything else. Not turning up at a meeting every now and again. Not posturing or sitting in the best seats, or only committing to something if you receive some form of recognition. None of that. True worship is when you give your life to God, and you let Him have His way. You let Him guide you. You let Him lead you. That even when it's uncomfortable and you don't like it, that you are obedient. That you serve Him in humble obedience. And let's not forget that all of this takes place in the context of Jesus proclaiming judgment on the temple and the temple authorities and asserting his supremacy as a teacher of scripture. In fact, the, he, he asserts his, his supremacy over all things. I mean, why do you think he even brought up Messiah in the first place? He's announcing who he is. Okay, you guys have been asking me all the wrong questions. Now I'm going to ask you the one question that's going to set this whole thing ablaze. This is who I am. And from this point, Jesus pulls away from addressing religious authorities directly. And he spends time with his disciples, time with people, and he starts his journey to the cross. And this is two, two significant things are about to happen. One's about to happen in a few days, and one's going to happen in about 70 years. Two temples are going to be raised to the ground. Jesus is going to be murdered by the religious authorities, but he will rise again on the third day, and he 
will ascend to heaven, and his temple will exist for all eternity with him as the head, made up of living stones that worship him. And then there's going to be the temple that the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees put all of their faith into, the system that they believed in, and that was going to be sacked, destroyed by Rome. And to this day, it has not been rebuilt. Jesus honored the widow for giving her life for God. How amazing is it? How poignant is it that Jesus, God, Messiah, was about to give his life for her and for all of us? She may be a great example of sacrifice, but Jesus is a greater example of sacrifice. The scribe's interpretation of Messiah may be a great picture of an earthly king, but Jesus is a greater heavenly king. They may have put hope in Messiah to deliver them from a great enemy in the Romans, but we put our faith in a king that is greater and will deliver us from a greater enemy that we struggle with, each and every one of us, sin and death. So what can we do with all of this? Do, do we go, well, that was such a good story, those scribes are such scoundrels, uh, or do we take pity or, or perhaps admire the widow? She's so humble, she's so real, she's so generous, so devoted. Or do we look at both of them and ask ourselves a harder question? How am I like the scribes? How can I be more like the widow? Can I ask us, as we, as we go home, to take a few things with us and start thinking about these. Can we honestly, please, honestly examine our relationship with wealth, whether we have it or not? Because it's not about rich or poor. We all have a relationship with wealth and what it means to us as a society. Can we honestly examine our relationship with that thing and ask ourselves how it influences our worship, not our songs that we sing, how it influences the way we live in service of our king. Secondly, can we challenge ourselves to ensure that our actions, our attitudes, and our thoughts are dictated by Christ rather than our financial or social status? When we do our little internal risk assessment, is this going to work for me or not work for me? Can we just, just, just forget pragmatism for a moment? I know everyone says, let's be pragmatic as though that's a good thing. In the kingdom of God, it's a shockingly bad thing. It means that you have no values, you have no principles, and you'll do whatever seems best to you. It's like survival of the fittest. Pragmatism is bad. Let us use Christ as the thing that determines whether something is the right thing to do or not, not pragmatism. Can we let the Holy Spirit push us on the point of generous giving. It's not to the level of convenience or what is financially prudent. Generosity goes beyond that, and it requires trust. Sacrificial giving involves a shift in our priorities. It, it asks us to focus on prioritizing God's kingdom rather than accumulating personal wealth. It moves us from a, a society that says, you need to look after yourself you are a very important person as an individual to, I need to look after what God wants me to do as part of a collection, a kingdom of people. 
I'm not saying he's going to ask, ask you this, but if he said, if he said, go, sell everything you have and follow me to a far-off land to preach to a people that you, you don't know, you don't understand, would you? Your answer reveals a lot about your level of trust and willingness to give him your whole life. Would you? You say, man, Jeremy, that's a bit heavy. Yeah, I know, I know it is, but it's what he demands of us. It's a tough question for me as well. I'm standing here asking it of myself. It's hard, but it is the one that we need to be asking. Are we actually more like the scribes that we vilify than the widow that we admire? Probably. But God can change our hearts, and I know he can. Um, Sarah, in the worship team, do you mind coming up? I'm going to close here. We are probably more like the scribes. And I remember when Jesus' disciples were astounded by his teaching and said, but then... What, what is possible? No one can be saved. And Jesus said, yes, it's true. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So let's respond now to the one who, for whom all things are possible, to the one who can change everything, including our hearts and our intentions and our motives, to our one true king, to the one who came to set us free from the power of sin and death, to the The one who said to us, do not fear, for I am with you until the end of the age. Do not fear, for I am with you till the end of the age. The one who says that he will provide everything we need if we give him everything we have. The one who takes off our robes of spiritual poverty and replaces them with robes of riches. Let's come to him. So as we worship, let's just spend a few moments as we start worshiping. Guys, can we stand? Let's stand. Let's just spend a few moments in quiet contemplation. However that works for you, hands out, maybe you want to be on your knees, just quietly being honest with him about this challenge. And then after that, let's, let's give him the worship he deserves. Not the worship that we feel comfortable with. Let's blow the top of this place. Let's raise our voices and sing with everything we have. It's the very, very least that we could do after all that he has done for us. So Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that that you challenge us, that you love us enough to challenge us and to challenge the way that we think. Lord, that you are willing to come and and declare to us in our, our modern world that the words you declared to the ancient world, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And that true worship of you requires a sacrifice of everything that we have and to trust you completely with our lives. Lord, that you come and you speak that into our hearts. 
at a time when society tells us that we should be looking for the exact opposite and we should be making sure that we are kings of our own lives and that we are responsible for our own resources. Lord, I ask that you help us to trust you with everything. Lord, to give you everything. Lord, to be obedient to you with everything. Lord, I want to thank you that we can trust you completely. That when we get it wrong, we can come to you and speak to you. That when you went to the cross, you didn't just die for some of my sins. That you died for all of my sins, all of my error, all of my wrongdoing, all of my bad attitudes, all of my errant thoughts, and all of my misthought or, or, or poorly thought out actions. Lord, you died for all of them. And Lord, I pray that you help us to come to you and be honest with you, and be open with you, and learn to trust you. In Jesus' name.